0: Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Today on the podcast was the first time I interviewed an old friend and colleague, Louise Baxter. We worked together a long time ago in the marketing department at Johnson & Johnson. She's now the CEO of the Starlight Foundation and has been in that role for 12 years. Starlight helped provide fun and happy experiences for sick children. And what a great mission that is. They have one value, to shine, which I think is just fantastic. Louise refers to the Starlight as a profit for purpose not a not-for-profit, and provides very, very good reasons for that. The surplus revenue which is generated has allowed them to grow massively in reach and impact. Louise exudes enthusiasm, and it's no surprise that they are the only charity that has won Aon Hewitt's Employer of the Year. The pandemic has provided lots of challenges for Starlight's work, but she encourages everyone to be part of the solution. There's just so much to take away from this episode. Enjoy. Louise Baxter, CEO of Starlight Foundation, welcome.
1: Hello, it's very nice. I'm just pondering that old friend clause.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll get into that in a moment. But uh, Louise, what does care in the workplace mean to you?
1: Well, for me, it has a very special meaning here at Starlight, but I don't want to let anyone else off the hook to think that you have to be in an organisation like ours to care within your organisation because I don't think that's correct at all. But what we do at Starlight um, in terms of our purpose, we envisage a world where everyone experiences a happy childhood. Mm. Why? Because happiness truly matters. Mm. And our mission within that is to brighten the lives of seriously ill and hospitalised children and young people. Mm. For us to be an authentic organisation, we could not have that purpose and not authentically as an organisation care not only about those children and young people and families we support, but for our entire team and everyone who interacts with us, quite frankly. So for us, it's about authenticity um, at its its core. For us to be an authentic organisation and for our leadership to be authentic we must be an organisation that is about that positivity and well-being throughout the organisation and that's about caring um, for your team. So from my perspective, it is a must for us as an organisation. It's not something new for us. Uh, however, I see that other organisations are probably in more of a, of a transition because I've also worked in the corporate world. Um, you know, back in the days of command and control, uh, where organisations were quite different. Mm. And I just see that if you want to have a high-performing organisation, the organisation has to be a positive, caring organisation. So, I actually don't think that those things, I, I, I've noted people kind of talk about balance between those two things, which su- suggests to me that they're mutually exclusive. Mm. I actually believe that if you have a positive, caring environment that supports the well-being and resilience of your team, that is the only way you can actually have a truly high-performing team that goes above and beyond. So, yeah, I actually I could, think they're connected.
0: I couldn't agree more. And and uh, the Gallup organisation has been researching engagement and discretionary effort for over 30 or 40 years, and they found that the most predictive question in terms of increased engagement, increased discretionary effort, is a positive answer to my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person.
1: I completely agree because we are an organisation that has been ranked in – the top uh, great places to work um, in Aon Hewitt's great places to work survey. So, we really um, look towards this as an indicator for us. And so, we do team surveys um, annually and, you know, those questions are the questions that I look for us to have those really high results on. Um, Engagement is something that's really incredibly important within an organisation because If people are not aligned and engaged um, with the direction you're going. So I talk about two things here. I talk about they need to be aligned and engaged with your purpose, which to me is your destination. Um, And they also need to be aligned and engaged with your strategy, with your business plans, the way that you're going to get there, your route. Mm -hmm. And I talk about the fact I do not want someone who has one foot on the bus, stop and one foot on the bus, I want someone who wants to get on your bus and sit in a seat and put two feet firmly in front of them because then they are committed. And if you have someone who's trying to pull the organisation in another direction, it Mm -hmm. means that it doesn't support you in achieving your metrics, your Mm -hmm. business metrics. Uh, But what it also means is they start to become disengaged Mm -hmm. and they become negative and they then start to try and look for others to pull into their negative corner. Yeah. So from our perspective, alignment and engagement is incredibly important. And I say if you are truly not happy here, mm-hmm. it is better for you to leave mm-hmm. because you will you will contribute more at another organization. The person that fills your role here will contribute more. So it's a win-win all round. And so what I what I jokingly refer to that is if you're not aligned and engaged here, Go flourish somewhere else because if you're truly flourishing, you have to be aligned and engaged Mm -hmm. and happy and Mm -hmm. feel that you're working in a positive, caring environment. So for me, it's everything. um,
0: Yeah, I heard uh, Tony Shea, who was the CEO of Zappos, he's passed away since, but something he did at the end of the orientation week of uh, an organisation is he would pay people $3,000 to leave. (laughs) And so what he was seeking to do was to really get those that weren't 110% on the journey, which I thought was very interesting.
1: That's an interesting concept. Um, I'd probably like to do it through a more positive (laughs) way. And, look, you can tell. You can tell Mm. when people are, you know, not aligned and engaged. Mm. And that's different from, you know, a performance um, issue, which is – Often about either behaviour; it's the person's not a cultural fit or um, skill. Um, mm. But if people are aligned and engaged, and if culturally they're a right fit, you you can correct the skill. Mm. So it's um it's that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, very much so. And you've also championed positive psychology with your employees and also mm-hmm. with the people you interact with. How did you make? How did you put that into action?
1: Well, as I said, it really comes back to authenticity. Now, we've been an organisation that really has been about um, positivity and positive psychology really from the start, but we probably formalised that back in 2012, 2013, Mm -hmm. and we started to um, enable all of our team to um, be trained in in the tenets of positive psychology when they first join the organisation. We then have training for the people managers, uh, refresher courses, and so positive psychology is something that really helps every day. Mm. And if you think about, you know, I talked about our, our, um, our mission about brightening the lives, and then we talk about our value is we have one value at Starlight, and that's to shine. And we talk about that in different ways. So we shine for the children and young people um, who we support. Um, We we shine by being exceptional in terms of our experiences with partners. We shine brighter together, which speaks to teamwork. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so we shine in a lot of ways. But at any moment in time, you can just stop and ask yourself, am I shining in this moment? So that's a fit. Mm. From a cultural perspective, I've talked about positivity. And all of those things really work together. So for us, it was really necessary and and right and proper for us to give our team the tools to recognise because mental health and positivity its a continuum. Yeah, of
0: course. And
1: on any any given day, you can move up and down those. Different Mm. scenarios can move you. Mm. And so what you need to be able to do is recognise within yourself when you're sliding down. Yeah. into a more negative mental health space mm-hmm. and what can you do to do to to lift yourself And so we talk about that here as boosting your mood. Yeah. and that's never been more important than now as yeah. people are working from home because when you are working in a uh, in an office situation or physically connected to people, Let's not say office, because I'd prefer to think of the way we're working now as hybrid, which yeah. is, you know, which which the place that best suits you at a point in time, or yeah. is it forced upon you at a point in time as <laughs> we have now? Yeah. Um, but I I think that um, that uh, you really need to to be able to know recognize within yourself mm. that something's not right here, and what do I do? So. And we're also looking out for others. So on Teams meetings, when we can see all those faces, you're looking intently as a manager all the time and you're thinking that person doesn't look like they're 100%. need to hop off the phone, either call their direct manager or call that person directly. So caring for each other is incredibly important. But I think one of the things that I love about um, positive psychology, which helps me often, is they have this premise of ants which are automatic negative thoughts. Mm. Now, we all have them. Mm. Sometimes you have ants crawling all over you. <laughs> you know that moment when you are asked to, I don't know, attend a meeting And you think, why have they called me to that meeting? Oh, my goodness, it's going to be because of blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And you go into this negative realm of all the negative things that that meeting could be about. They might be calling that meeting to tell you that they want to give you the contract, that they want to give you a salary increase. I don't know. There's a whole raft of really positive reasons. But somehow in our minds, we go into these automatic negative thoughts about something. And so I think flipping ants into the positive and stepping back and going, let's just sit back. And let's start from the fact that they're going to have positive intent. There's a whole raft of positive things. Now, you probably need to be prepared. I don't want people to be um, ridiculous and not prepared if people ask you a tricky, challenging question. Mm. But sometimes we enable ourselves to move in that space. So I I think that choosing, that recognising and having tools to know what you can do to put yourself in a more positive mind space is really important for all of us to have.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And I talk about uh, a moodometer in, in the keynotes and workshops I do. And this green zone, amber zone red zone, of course, and when you're in the green zone, you're more resourceful, more creative, more positive, more optimistic. But a Business re- Review has also showed that when you are in the green zone, you're 31% more productive, 37% more influential, and 300% more creative. So it really is a, a no-brainer. And, and it, it doesn't mean we don't go down that moodometer, but also just knowing if you can catch it early and knowing the things you can do that make a difference, whether that's a walk outside or catching up with a friend or whatever. We all have ownership of our mood and, uh, you know, responsibility to try and boost it and bring it up as well.
1: That's exactly right. And that's why we call it, talk about what are you doing to boost your mood? I Mm. I say it on my national team meetings regularly Mm. and we have our team are all trained in this and we ask people to make sure they're doing those things. And also, how can you flip that negative into a positive? And you speak about um, you know, those performance metrics that you just mentioned. Mm. That's exactly why I don't think that this is about balance. Mm. This is about you must have, if you are a leader of today and the future, mm. you must care for your team. You must, you must show that openly. Mm. You must be authentic about that. And then what will happen is you will have a high performing team and things mm. like as you just said, creativity is boosted, mm. um, you know, innovation is boosted, mm. collaboration is boosted, all of those things that you want that drive business metrics and I often say this is not about fluffy stuff. Mm. This is about business metrics. Every single business metric at Starlight has been improved because of the way we address, because of our culture, our values and the fact that we provide the tools to the team to, to support themselves and each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You describe your organisation as profit for purpose. Would you mind just explaining what that is and why you've provided that tweak for your organisation?
1: I think it's nonsense that uh, this sector is referred to as the not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. There is no other sector on this earth that describes itself as what it is not. <laughs> and, and I always say that, um, it, quite frankly, it also has this stigma of we are therefore, historically it's had this stigma, that the sector is somehow um, uh, not effective. Uh, And I think it's that not-for-profit title that actually can convey some of that. In fact, we are about maximum profit. We actually have much higher profit. We pour it back into our programs, into our research, whatever it is that your mission is, as your um, within this sector, you actually work on higher profit margins than any other commercial organisation. You just feed them straight back into whatever your purpose is. Yeah. So yeah. my my take on that is not that we're not for profit. You know, any dunce can run a business and not make a profit. Mm. We are a smart, effective sector. And we are a profit for purpose because we maximize our profit and use it for purpose. Yeah. So that's where I think the differentiator is. And for me, again, it's flipping a negative into a positive, and I'm not very big on negatives.
0: <laughs> and that's allowed you to grow quite dramatically, hasn't it? And you uh, just give, provide some of the metrics um, that has, has um, appeared while you've been CEO.
1: Okay. Well, we've um, uh, we've grown. Well, we we have a bit of a a blip in that at this point in time. Of course, because <laughs> because COVID has uh, uh, driven a bit of a, a curveball for us. But mm-hmm. um, our revenue has grown from around sixteen million dollars uh, in two thousand and uh, ten, let's say, to uh, around forty million dollars. But most importantly our uh, program delivery. So back in 2010, uh, we delivered about 145,000 positive starlight experiences to children and young people and their families. And in 2019, we delivered over 625,000 positive starlight experiences. So the growth in our program delivery has been significant. Um, And we've become, if you think about those metrics as well as the as the dollars and the, the delivery, we've become more efficient as we scaled. Um, so I think that, as I say, if I look at any business metric, the organisation has become more effective. Our social return on investment, we we measure our social return on investment and that has grown. So yeah. we're now delivering um, for uh, the programs that we measure in this way, um, over five dollars of value for every dollar we invest. Mm. And so a, a return on investment of in excess of five to one is pretty good. And we, we were first in the la- in the high threes and high and early fours for those and now both of those are over the five dollars um, for every dollar we invest in those programs. Um, which is which is really positive and that's why mm. we did those not to pat ourselves on the back so that we constantly could improve yeah. and that's what we look to do.
0: Yeah and the, and, and your revenue surpluses have allowed that growth they've, they've helped to fund that growth and that's why you call it a profit for purpose I think it's, uh, that, it's exactly
1: mm. Yeah, exactly.
0: I really like that. If you believe, like we do, that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo Poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch a initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. I have a, um, a good friend that I meet every... Thursday morning. So, and we go for a walk really early. And um, Richard is a partner at KPMG, but he's also been, he and his wife have been very unlucky. You know, they had a a son and, uh, or two sons that were, had a real genetic illness. And uh, their first son has uh, died, unfortunately, at the age of 16. And their second son is very unwell. And, uh, but he, when I would, we walking this morning, I, I told him that we're, I was catching up with yourself and he just um, discussed the, the really positive impact that Starlight had on his, his children. You know, the Starlight Room had made such a big difference. His... Uh, Son had been scheduled to have surgery. I think it was about a week ago. Went under anaesthetic, and they found out there was a urinary infection, so they had to stop. So wakes up, didn't have the surgery. They'd been preparing for all this sort of stuff, and uh, the first thing that uh, the son said to Richard was, "Can I go to the starlight room?" And um, it's it's uh, must be great to hear stories like that.
1: Uh, I hear that story so often and people will often say to me, oh, it must be really sad working at Starlight. It's like, oh, no, it's not. Starlight is the happiest, most positive, inspiring place to be. And when you speak to parents, they don't ever, and children and young people, they do not remember the pain that they went through. They do not remember the 43 surgeries, the, the time away from friends, they remember their time, the joy, the happiness, the fun that they had interacting with Starlight programs in the hospital. And that's what I say what we do at Starlight is so incredibly simple, yet so powerful. Mm-hmm. We give children and young people who have their ability to just have pure joy and be fun. And they have that kind of taken away from them because all of the, the treatment of the illness or injury um, is really difficult and, and it's, it's it causes anxiety and stress and it's painful. And children, as we all know, are easily distracted. So if we can distract them, positively distract them, mm-hmm. it means that their memories then, and, and, you know, having a serious illness, that's a trauma. Mm. for these children, but if their memory is of the happiness and joy and the fun, and children can replace that because we are beings who want to, you know, we are positive beings at our very uh, centre. So if that's what the children remember, and I hear stories of, of parents saying that before Starlight was in a hospital, they had to take their child for treatment and they would be dragging them into the car and the child would scream the entire way to the hospital. and then since starlight was in the hospital the child is it bounces into the car is in the front seat and needs to be dropped off at the hospital (laughs) before the parent parks so and they run into the starlight express room that to me is everything so what we do is we reframe that hospital and medical healthcare experience Mm. for those children and young people and you know we're in the hospitals we're also in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Mm. And they um, generally have uh, a fear and suspicion of white government health Mm. workers potentially coming into their communities. But Starlight, Captain Starlight is part of that team, bridges that gap Mm. and makes them feel comfortable in attending those health clinics, Mm. which is incredibly important for those children who are in community, undiagnosed with serious illnesses that could kill them if not diagnosed and treated. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's simple. It just reframes the healthcare experience into something that is fun and positive, and that's what the kids remember.
0: And it's a big win for the parents as well, you know, just uh, seeing that change, like a huge win for them because, you know, they're, they're under so much strain. My, my uh, sister is a nurse at Bear Cottage, and one of the things she did there was to put together a wellbeing program for the parents because they've been running – their own batteries dry, you know, through trying to care for a very, very sick child, and um, and so yeah, it's 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 more than just the child. It's uh, you know their family at least, but also friends as well. Uh-huh. You're absolutely
1: right. You know, I sometimes, if I'm in the hospital, you will see the child who is managing, and you look across at the parent mm-hmm. who has spent sometimes months yeah. in hospital sleeping in the bed, you know, sleeping beside the child, mm-hmm. and the, the parent is absolutely spent. Mm-hmm. And the parents will say to us, when Captain Starlight, um, you know, came into the room and my child smiled for the first time in months. I then realised that my child was still there within the illness. Yeah. And I think that's something that's, you know, really powerful. And, you know, Bear Cottage is a palliative care um, hospice and uh, we – but the thing about palliative care is that 70% of children who are in pall care are in at-home palliative care. Yeah. And so we have a program called Starlight Moments – which supports those children and families who have a child in at-home palliative care, which can be for several years. And, you know, we just those moments of joy that we can deliver to those families Mm. completely changes. Because, you know, we talked at the beginning that mental health is a continuum and you've got to know what you do to boost your mood. So Starlight is that mood booster for those families. And. It just lifts you and then it enables you to have that resilience, to go back in, to face whatever comes next. So I think it's incredibly important for the families as well as for the children and young people and also for the health um, professionals. Yeah. Because one of the things that we did in this recent time when our programs were restricted for the first time was we uh, went in and did some research. Mm-hmm. And the prof- health professionals were delivering comments to us like if Starlight is not back, fully back in this hospital soon, I'm going to lose my clinical team. Wow. Because it changes the morale of the hospital. Mm. It injects fun. I've had doctors say to me, I won't get in a lift with your Captain Starlights because I never know what they're gonna make me do between floors. But that <laughs> that that, you know, is fun. And it lifts the whole it lifts the whole um, feeling of the of the, the wards and the community.
0: Yeah. Louise, I know you went to a residential program at Stanford. What can you explain a little bit about that and what you took away from it?
1: Um, that was the uh, I attended the executive program for um, not for profit leaders, profit for purpose leaders. I have to have them change that. Um, and it was a, I was there as part of a scholarship um, from the Stanford Australia Foundation, and it was the most remarkable um, experience. It was there were fifty five um, people uh, in this residential course, and we were from I think sixteen different countries, mm. and to just have that um, cross pollination of 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 purpose, mm. of, um, of situations, because, you know, it's very different if you're talking to someone who's in an African country and what they're trying to do is get sanitation into, into villages, mm. um, uh, you know, very different from us in a, you know, a first world environment. But just that that shared energy, positive energy was amazing and we still connect. Um, together as a group and share ideas and help each other. So I think it was really just the shared experience was incredibly positive. Now, of course, we also had access to the amazing minds um, at Stanford yeah. um, and, you know, their philanthropy and civil society teams, uh, some of the most respected in the world. And uh, I've been lucky enough to actually return as part of a a fully funded study tour. Mm. Um, And that was also an amazing experience. That was with a group of 10 CEOs from Australia Mm. um, who were taken there. So I've been able to experience Stanford through two um, different uh, routes and it has been remarkable in both instances. And just to open your mind and take those blinkers off because I think sometimes people do become very um, focused on their purpose and their cause. Yeah. And one of the things that I really like to do is um, this sector is a sector that is very unusual because we can actually collaborate. There are no rules that stop us collaborating, which you have in the commercial world. (laughs) Um, And it means that if we do that, We're not, because I don't see anyone else in this sector as a competitor to us. Mm. I see that we are all working together. We have our specific spaces and if we ensure we don't duplicate delivery, then we can deliver the maximum impact to those people we support, the people we support, the causes we support, whether that's the environment. And so people who are in this sector who have a bit of a blinkered, you know, I'm competing competing with you, Mm. I think that's really wrong. Because we have an opportunity that does not exist in the corporate world, which excites me so much that we can all work together, we share. I will share our learnings from anything we do with any other organisation because if I can save them from spending one dollar of donated mm. funding that I know they can spend more effectively elsewhere, then I think we should do that. So I think this is a really this is a sector that can show everyone how things can really be done if you collaborate. We have 105 collaborations in play right now. Mm. And so that's us working with other organizations in a whole variety of ways. So you know when we go in community um, through our Starlights Healthier Futures initiative into remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, we're always partnering with another charity organisation um, yeah. to deliver in those those spaces. So I think uh, the more we work together,
0: um, the more we can all achieve. Yeah, and as you know, I've been involved with the You um, U uh, OK since its inception as well, and we've always had that mindset that, you know, it's not scarcity, it should be abundance we're thinking about. And the very first You um, U OK Day we had in 2009 it was the first time that all the mental health charities had worked together the first mm-hmm. time and uh, that's something that we've always really strove strive for because uh, we don't we can't do everything we can't but uh, just realizing how we can collaborate how we can you know expand the pie i think that's a, a very very powerful lesson
1: absolutely and that's what i say it's you know if we continue to try and fight over our slice of the pie Nothing's going to grow. Um, But if we all work together, we need to grow philanthropy. We need to grow trust. And and donors, when I share stories of Starlight's work in partnership with other charity organisations, all they see is that we are smart. The other organisations we're working with are smart to do it that way. And it increases trust and
0: support. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned at the start we were old friends. What I probably should have said is we're friends and known each other for a long time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We probably can tick both boxes,
0: right? <laughs> uh, so for our listeners, uh, Louise and I worked at Johnson & Johnson a few years back, uh, and it was we were both in uh, in marketing roles. So it might be just interesting for our listeners, Louise, to just explain about your transition from working as a you know senior product manager in Uh, Johnson & Johnson to now being the CEO of the Starlight Foundation?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, I spent uh, a lot of years. I spent 10 years uh, client-side in um, FMCG or fast-moving consumer goods areas and uh, several of those years and incredibly happy years um, at Johnson & Johnson. And then I moved into uh, the advertising world and worked on a lot of businesses uh, uh, like Procter & Gamble, Kellogg uh, and New South Wales Tourism and thoroughly, thoroughly loved that. And I was working in advertising for um, about 15 years uh, and I had worked for Leo Burnett uh, advertising and then uh, another agency that I'd worked in partnership with two other individuals who I'd met during my time at um, Johnson, Johnson and Johnson. Uh, and I just reached this moment in my life where I felt that I wasn't loving it uh, as I always had. And I started to question, is there not more I can do with my um, marketing and sales skills than than sell the consumer goods that I'm selling? Mm. And so, I um, took a moment and thought I wanted to move to this sector in some way. Now, my original thought was that I would potentially move back into a client-side marketing role because... Corporate social responsibility or triple bottom line, because I'm talking 20 years ago now, Mm. that was all the big thing. Mm. And so I thought I'd move into that kind of role back in a corporate. However, a six month contract at Starlight um, became available. And I thought it would be smart for me to take the role at Starlight. Because while I had worked client-side, agency-side, I'd worked on promotions, I'd worked on advertising, PR, I hadn't actually, I'd worked for charities, but I'd not worked um, in the charity world. So I'd done advertising work for charities, a promotional work, but not in a charity. And so uh, Starlight was a charity that was very dear to me. Um, I had, uh, as a child, I had a family friend who um, he died at uh, when he was quite young he'd had cancer starlight didn't exist Mm -hmm. and i saw the pain the anxiety i saw the impact on the family and starlight as an organization that that changes that into something that is um where people can remember the positives Mm -hmm. was something that really appealed to me so i came here on a six-month contract um, stayed for, uh, for years, then returned to the corporate world uh, because I reached that moment that I needed a new challenge here and the then CEO was staying. So, very, um, uh, you know, happy to move on and take my own advice of go flourish somewhere else because if you are sitting somewhere and you need a new challenge and you can't get it within the organization, you should leave. Mm-hmm. And I left and then Um, I came back uh, about 18 months later, um, uh, which was post-GFC and uh, it was a very different world then uh, Mm -hmm. because things had changed and so I've been here for 12 years since then. So I've moved from uh, corporate world to this uh, profit for purpose back and back again. So I actually think there is far more similarity um, than there are differences Mm -hmm. and... um, And, you know, most of the people, many of the people that I've employed here have been from the commercial sector because the skills are directly transferable um, and uh, there are a lot of people who reach that point in their life that I reached 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Last week, I interviewed uh, Marcus Blackmore from Blackmore's and he talks a lot about entrepreneurship. But when he talks about (laughs) entrepreneurs and outstanding entrepreneurs, he talks about people like Wesley Knopf at the Wayside Chapel and and the Wesley Centre and this sort of thing because he said, that's true entrepreneurism. You have an idea and then you make it happen. You have have to execute it. So uh, I thought that was a really interesting take on who he considered great entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think there are people who are, um, you know, you don't don't have to be a small business owner to be an entrepreneur. I completely agree with him. Mm-hmm. This organisation um, has a significant number of people that I would consider as entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, they've chosen to do that within this space and within that organ this organisation. Mm-hmm. So I think, but it's people who have a love. Of of innovation, you know, we constantly are trialing things because if you can if you can review the risks and you know manage those, just give something a go. And I'm very much uh, what I love about our innovation process here is that, you know, you have to scope um, uh, what the need is, and you have to be customer centric in everything you're doing. But you should give it a go and then iterate and learn. And mm. I think that that, that really um, is something that speaks to me and something that, you know, was really instilled in me back in my days in FMCG marketing. You know, mm. you never had a media plan unless you had a test in it because otherwise you're not learning anything. Yeah. And so that whole sense of here I'm constantly looking for what are we doing that's different within that, that mm. gives us a learning within that. So just don't keep it the cookie-cutter um might be working at that moment in time but try a different shape you might do the use the cookie cutter for four and try a different shape for the other and see how that goes mm. otherwise you're never learning so yeah. for me I'm, I'm always looking for where's the trial where's there something different that we're doing within that um that can push us that we can learn from and the other thing is you then have to have that organisation that embraces failure because Mm -hmm. you're not going to get it right and you need to share why Mm -hmm. you didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you embrace, you know, failure, uh, you know, I don't want the same fail a couple of times in a row and making the same mistake without changing anything is just stupid. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of some 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 things you have to put around that. But really, you have to have an environment that, that actively it's okay to fail because if you have a, a culture where people know no matter what you say that they're going to get hammered if something doesn't work, then you're never, ever going to be an innovative and you're never going to have entrepreneurs within your organisation because everyone will just... You know, keep their heads down and you won't move forward and grow.
0: Yeah, 100%. We, we turn that psychological safety, you know, where people can be themselves, they know they can take risks and know that they'll be supported if things don't go wrong. And uh, it's it's been determined as the number one success factor for teams is, is just what you described. And um, it makes a lot of sense. I also had, uh, you know, a very t- positive time at uh, Johnson Johnson. And it is the only, organisation in my career where even, you know, 20 plus years later, there's a number of us that meet every year. And uh, it's certainly, why do you think, what was unique from your perspective about your time at Johnson & Johnson?
1: I think we all had, we were all focused, really focused um, on business outcomes. But the group of people, the, the the marketing crew that we had there at that point in time, We were also, we did care for each other Mm. and we also had fun at work. You know, I can remember people going out for lunch and back in those days, we didn't have offices, and we didn't have um, open plan. We had that mm. that halfway house where you had those petitions that set you an Beautiful. office space, <laughs> and of course, somebody would go out to lunch, and we'd all uh, be in on the prank. And by the time they came back, their 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 space was gone because we'd moved <laughs> all the petitions, and it was a bit of fun. So I think I think back then we we were focused on the outcomes. We worked hard, but we also kind of played hard, had fun. And I think that um, that's why, and they were probably – we were all, you know, young marketing professionals at that point in time mm-hmm. and we've all grown in our careers but we've all stayed connected and you're right. It's, um, you know, it's a joy to catch up with that team. Um, but I also catch up, you know, uh, with the team that I worked with at Leo Burnett. Um, so catching up with those team members that you had all those years ago, um, I think it shows you the culture of that place at that point in time. Yeah. And the culture is something that isn't, directed to you top-down, mm. you know, that's something that that is within your
0: organisation and I think yeah. those people bring that. One thing Johnson Johnson had, and this is way before it was popular, was, you know, the credo and this was a definition of what the company stood for and it was always first priority was to the mothers and uh, that used the products, uh, then it was to the healthcare workers, then it was to the staff and finally to... Uh, the, the the stockholders, you know, the people that uh, held the shares. And this was introduced in 1943. And I know that when, when Robert Johnson introduced it, he had, I think, four board members resign because uh, they just didn't think it was right to have, you know, stockholders right at the bottom. But it has proven to be a real key factor in their ongoing success. And if you look at um, highly successful companies, Johnson and Johnson is one of the few that is still in the top uh, twenty by market value in the world. You know, a lot of the others are, are Facebook and and uh, Google and et cetera, etc. etc. But it's quite remarkable, isn't it, how it has evolved and still stayed relevant um, over a hundred years, years later.
1: Absolutely, and any, I think that the flip. Um, you know, I think a lot of organisations started that way. They were truly customer-centric because they all started as family companies. Mm. And so family companies at their, at their heart were all about their customers and in those early days knew all their customers before they, you know, scaled and became huge organisations. But I think that somewhere um, we flipped um, uh, and the greed is good took over and the shareholders became the number one um, uh, on that list and my firm belief is if you get the if you get the the, the customer, the team, all of those things right, your, your shareholders will benefit. Yeah. And so it's, right at the start of this, I said, you know that it's not a balance of between care for your team and high performance. If you don't care for your team, you will not have a high perf- performing team. Absolutely. And it's in your shareholders' interests that your team is high-performing, so why wouldn't you want it? So I just think that somewhere along the way uh, that flipped and that yeah. that, was, that was, you know, uh, wrong. And I think that we've seen the folly um, of, of that in recent years where, you know, money is everything and it's not. You know, happiness is far more
0: important. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about your leadership style now, has there been any book or any person who's had a big impact in the way that you lead now?
1: Uh, look, I think, Graham, it's, um. if I open my cupboard here, there's a bazillion books <laughs> up there. Um, and there's also been a lot of people. So mm. there are people I have learned from, and I think you need to listen. And some of those people have been People who rep- who reported to me, who were you know my direct reports, mm. who called me when I you know wasn't doing something well mm. um, that made them feel uncomfortable, that I've taken stock of and now would never do. Mm. Um, uh, there've been um, clients. You know, I, I remember once I had a client who said to me, "I can tell you're not truly listening because you're already formulating the the answer." You know, while while I'm mid sentence, and I thought. He's absolutely right. So from that moment on I actually stopped and listened and thought I'll hear the question first before I start to um, prepare, I suppose back in those days too it was probably my defence of why something had happened, Mm. Um, whereas now I'm much more open to hearing those other points of view. I also now, you know, I embrace um, vulnerability I am very anti-perfection um, and I think that probably back in those days I would have, you know, 30 years ago I probably would have liked to have said proudly that I was a perfectionist. I always joke now and say if I'm ever interviewing anyone who says they're a perfectionist, I need to have Graham Norton's big red chair and just flip them straight out of the interview, <laughs> because all perfectionists ever do is um, uh, drive anxiety for themselves and everyone around them. Mm. Um, so embracing vulnerability and um, you know I, I've had you know a boss who once said to me, "I'm going to back you, um, and even if you're wrong, I'm still going to back you." Mm. I'm like those kind of things are very empowering, and then you learn those as you go along, and. Um, and you, they become part of your style. I also had one of my mentors who shared with me um, how to be the naive inquirer, um, and I, that's been something that I use so often, and, you know, the trick in that is you might already know the answer or you know, might know what you think they're telling you, but you act as though you don't and you probe and you get much more valuable information. So I think that questioning, listening um, is probably the area where I've, I've learned most. Um, but yeah, there's little snippets that, um, that you'll hear in everything, uh, you know, in a lot of what I say, which are tiny grabs from, from, from books and, uh, and articles that I've read and people that I've worked with, um, you know, both mentors and mentees, um, yeah. uh, over the years.
0: Yeah, I normally ask here. You know, what advice? What you, if knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your young self? And you've already mentioned a few of that: to not strive for perfection, to be more vulnerable, to back people. Any other advice that you would give to yourself, knowing what you know now, if you go back and talk to when you were um, uh, just just out of uh, uni?
1: Yeah, I, I think they would be the key things. <clears throat> I think the perfection one is a big one. Mm. It's okay to be vulnerable and ask. Mm. I, I'm a big believer in asking um, and and reaching out. You know, I have a I have a large um, I have a large network. Um, I never burn bridges. That's the other piece mm. of advice I would give people. People mm. who burn bridges, I just don't know why they do it. You just okay. never know mm. who. Or what's going to pop up so just bite your tongue um you know and always be nice (laughs) (laughs) always be nice um so i i think that's that's really important but i yeah i think that um uh that that whole perfection vulnerability thing is the most is the most important
0: wonderful it's been a real pleasure catching up louise in this sort of manner and uh, getting a chance to sort of just delve a bit deeper into the way you've worked uh you've made it a really magnificent contribution to a great area and you and the extended team has served so many kids so many parents and and also health personnel and hospitals so a pleasure having you on the caring ceo louise
1: thanks so much graham have a wonderful day
0: Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable we care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, accessible, practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.